some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The night Joachim Gouchenau was set to leave Paris, he spent precious time with his wife, Renée. The two ate dinner together, then wandered the streets near the Arc de Triomphe, holding hands more like new lovers than a middle-aged married couple. When the time came, they sweetly kissed goodbye, with Joachim promising to send his wife word of his safe arrival in Argentina as soon as he was settled. Two months later, in March 1942, a sense of unease grew in Renée. She'd heard nothing from her husband, so she went to chat with the man who had facilitated Joachim's trip. That man happened to be Joachim's personal doctor, Marcel Petio, who assured the distraught wife that there was nothing to worry about. Petio said he himself had received word from Joachim and that he'd safely made his way through Marseille and Casablanca before reaching Buenos Aires. In fact, Petio said, he'd received a postcard from Joachim to prove it. The message on it read, I have arrived. I got sick during the crossing, but I am completely healed. You can come. At least, that's what the doctor said it read. The message had been written in a secret code, so Rene had to take his word for it, which she did. Joachim, after all, was a Jewish man fleeing occupied Paris, and Petio was a trusted friend and reputed resistance fighter. And this was trustfall time. Joachim had already endured so much at the hands of the Third Reich. He had been forced to first label his business as Jewish-owned and paint in the front windows, and then soon after, he was forced to sell the furrier shop for next to nothing to a non-Jew. It was demoralizing, of course, but that was just the beginning. While Joachim had a good sum of stashed money, jewels, furs, and gold coins, he knew that the occupiers could commandeer his life savings at any moment. The laws in occupied Paris were so arbitrary, so quick to change. People were routinely rounded up and sent away on trains, never to reappear. Joachim had heard rumors of the concentration camps, of course, but this was before the true extent of what was happening was known to everyone. On a day-to-day basis, people tried to walk around like life was somewhat normal. But in truth, they were in a constant state of terror, never knowing whom to trust or what horrifying changes they would face next. Joachim was so grateful that his doctor Petio was sympathetic to his plight and knew a way to help him escape. Of course, we wouldn't be exploring this case on crimes of the centuries if everything was as it seemed. Two years after Petio helped Joachim start a new life in Buenos Aires, French police discovered a torture room and a lime pit full of body parts in one of Petio's townhomes. Some people, certain that the good doctor was a resistance fighter, assumed the bodies were Nazis or Nazi sympathizers or collaborators, in which case they weren't keen on investigating too deeply. Others, however, were just as certain the doctor was and had always been a fraud. 
and that he used the atrocities surrounding him to cover up the horrors he was committing himself. Whatever the truth, the case became so huge that for a while it overshadowed news of the war in publications worldwide and triggered a months-long manhunt that many predicted would never be resolved. Marcel Petiot had grown up in the old medieval town of Auxerre, located nearly 100 miles southeast of Paris. The town was the definition of both quaint and historic, with winding cobbled streets and avenues dotted with Gothic cathedrals and clock towers built in the late 1400s. The town was known best for its wine-growing district, famous for its Chablis, as well as its second leading export, timber. That's according to a book called Death in the City of Light by David King, who also dug into Marcel's parents' backgrounds. Marcel's father, Felix Mustiel, worked at the town's postal and telegraph office, where he met Martha Bourdon, though she preferred the nickname Clémence. Martha had been a postal clerk before falling in love with Felix and getting married. Marcel was their firstborn, arriving January 17, 1897. It would be nearly 10 years before he'd be joined by a brother named Maurice. From a documentary by Briefcase. From a young age, it was apparent. Marcel Petio was a very intelligent child, but he also displayed some very strange behavioral problems. When he was just 11 years old, he brought his father's gun into school and fired it in class. He was known to torture and kill animals. He brought pornography into school to share with tween classmates. Basically, all of the behaviors we know now to look for as red flags, Marcel displayed. His behavior got worse after his mother died in 1912, and his father sent him to live with an aunt. He continued to be disruptive, both in and outside school, and was apprehended when he vandalized a postbox. He was then charged with theft. Given the circumstances, both his young age and the recent death of his mother, he wasn't arrested and charged in a straightforward manner. Rather, he underwent a psychiatric evaluation. The results of which showed that he had a mental health condition. It seems feasible in hindsight that someone could have intervened at this point, but no one did. Instead, he was simply sent back to school, where he continued to act out in his classes. He was suspended for his behavior time and again, until finally, he was sent to a special academy in Paris. When he finished that school in July 1915, when Marcel would have been nearly 18, France was enmeshed in the First World War. By January 1916, so literally six months after finishing school, Marcel was called to serve in the French infantry. He took part in the Second Battle of the Essene, where he was wounded and exposed to gas. Following this, his behavior became a concern to his officers, and after being assessed, it was believed that he had suffered a mental breakdown. He was subsequently sent to an army recovery home, where his behavior continued to be somewhat strange. He was arrested for stealing blankets, morphine, and other army supplies, as well as wallets, photographs, and letters. He was sent to jail in Orléans to await his trial. Again, though, his mental health issues spared him a conviction. After the judge in the case reviewed Marcel's medical reports, he decided this still teenager was insane. Instead of jail or prison, Marcel was sent to a psychiatric hospital. And yet he was returned to the front line in June 1918. That's how desperate France was for soldiers in the Great War. Marcel didn't last there long, however. 
Three weeks after his return to the war, Marcel managed to shoot himself in the foot. Literally. Whether by accident or as an intentional way to get himself out of the war for good, we can't know for sure. He again was evaluated by psychiatrists, some of whom were adamant he should stay hospitalized, but he was again released. Now, being a war vet had some benefits. Marcel left the psychiatric unit and took advantage of the government's accelerated education program, which was set up for French war veterans. He studied medicine and was a very impressive student, managing to complete his classroom studies in just eight months. He then returned to the psychiatric hospital in the city of Evreux in northern France, but not as a patient. He was there to serve a two-year internship. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see all kinds of potential problems with this situation. Marcel was an animal-torturing psych patient who clearly lacked empathy and impulse control, but who was sharp enough to graduate in less than a year and land himself an internship. He got his medical degree in December 1921, after which he set up his own medical practice in a town close to Auxerre. There, he was known as a hard-working physician who was generally well-liked by the townsfolk, even though almost straight away, rumors spread that he might have been doing some under-the-table stuff in his practice. For example, it seemed to outsiders that he was generous with his payment plans, cutting deals for lower-income patients and even waiving bills outright for the neediest. Several slowly realized, however, that he had enrolled them in the state-funded medical assistance program. This meant that he was able to charge both the governments and the patient for his services. Now that didn't directly cost his patients money, so many basically shrugged off the dubious activity. They also didn't seem to mind his tendency to overprescribe a certain class of medication, as explained by a show produced by Serial Killers Documentaries. He favored addictive narcotics in his prescriptions. When one pharmacist complained of the near-fatal dose Petio prescribed for a child, Petio replied, What difference does it make to you anyways? Isn't it better to do away with this kid who's not doing anything in the world but pestering its mother? Some pharmacists eventually refused to fill Petio's prescriptions, but there were always plenty of others more than willing, especially because Petio could be quite generous when he wanted to be. His personal behavior was even more bizarre than his professional. He lived modestly, but splurged on a sports car. He drove recklessly through Villeneuve-sur-Yonne, causing numerous traffic accidents. A confirmed thief, Petio stole from strangers and relatives alike. Brother Maurice insisted on searching his pockets every time Marcel visited his home. Evicted by one landlord for theft of furniture and fixtures, Petio shrugged off threats of litigation with the remark that, as a certified lunatic, he could never be convicted. This leads to an odd part of the story. In March 1922, he was ordered to undergo new psychiatric exams to keep his government disability payments rolling in. So he was making money as a doctor, having interned in a psych hospital, no less. Yet he was also pocketing money for having disabilities of the mental health variety. At this point, Petio refused to be re-examined saying he'd rather stop getting his government checks if it meant having to be humiliated in a quote-unquote disagreeable bit of exhibitionism. The checks didn't stop, and Petio did eventually undergo an examination in July 1923 that showed scars on his tongue, apparently from unconsciously biting himself during epileptic seizures. He was allowed to continue receiving some disability help, 
though the amount was cut in half. On a personal level, Petio was no less flummoxing. In 1926, Petio surprised his neighbors by launching a torrid affair with young Louise de Valot, the daughter of Madame Fleury, an elderly patient. Actually, she was more likely the Madame's housekeeper, according to David King's book, and the two met in 1924, not 26. But something major did happen in 1926 related to Louise. She disappeared. Louise, or Louisette, for those who preferred to use her proper first name, met Marcel at a dinner party. She was 24 years old, a brunette with dark eyes. It was clear to everyone at the party that Petio was smitten. He seemed lighter than usual around Louise, more carefree. Petio asked around town to learn more about Louise, which was a pretty simple task given his huge Rolodex, what with being a popular doctor in town. He found a mutual friend who agreed to pass along a love letter from Marcel to Louise. It invited her to call him if she were at all interested in his overtures. She was, and so she did. Soon after, she moved in with him. To outsiders, Louise simply seemed like Marcel's help, his cook and maid. Relationships outside of marriage were of course frowned upon at the time, and a physician marrying a maid, well, that wouldn't do. So the two were a couple who pretended not to be. It didn't take long, though, for Louise to realize she'd maybe made a mistake. Marcel was obsessive-compulsive, constantly buying what Louise perceived to be junk from so-called antique sales. Then, Marcel began sleeping with another patient. It's possible that Louise was pregnant when she disappeared in May 1926. She supposedly told one of her friends as much, and said that Marcel was planning to perform an abortion, an illegal side hobby he was known to have to make extra money. After Louise vanished, Petio told her friends that the two had fought viciously one night, upsetting Louise so much that she had stormed out of town without saying goodbye to anyone. One of Petio's friends, René Nezondé, was sure the tale was true just based on how distraught Petio seemed. He wept and trembled and even left a sealed note with his new maid, Suzanne, addressed to Louise just in case she returned. Of course, she never did. The investigation into Louise Delavaux's disappearance was abandoned by police within a few months, though there were suspicions wafting through town. Neighbors recalled seeing Petio load a large trunk into his car, closely resembling another fished out of the river weeks later, filled with the dismembered, decomposing remains of a young woman who was never identified. Soon after, Petio's career took a dramatic turn. He ran for mayor of Villeneuve-sur-Yon as a member of the Socialist Party, which was gaining momentum in many parts of France. Petio's platform was essentially appealing to society's have-nots, many of whom in the area he'd treated in his medical practice. They were the ones who had been happiest with his care, after all, because he often waived the fees for his services to them. The long, bitter campaign climaxed in July 1926, when Petio hired an accomplice to disrupt a political debate with his opponent. When Petio finished speaking, his crony cut power to the auditorium, blacking out the entire village and starting several fires. Petio won by a landslide. It's perhaps not surprising that becoming mayor did not calm Petio's unorthodox tendencies. His constant thievery became well known to all. 
As in, people got used to knowing that when Petio stopped by for a mayoral chat, something would turn up missing afterward. Sometimes they'd confront him about it, and he wouldn't even make up a story. He'd laugh this high-pitched, uncomfortable laugh, and then hand the stolen item back without making an excuse. It was just like, okay, you got me. Mayor Petiot was suspected of stealing money from the town's treasury, the bass drum from a local band, even a large stone cross that Petiot had once deemed an eyesore. If you were expecting universal condemnation of this behavior, however, you'd be mistaken. Some despised Petiot. Others called him the best mayor ever. Ah, politics. Petiot publicly shrugged off any criticism by saying that the bad rumors about him were planted by crass political enemies. During his mayoral tenure, Petio got married to a woman named Georgette in 1927, the year after his girlfriend Louise had disappeared. Georgette and Marcel had one son named Gerald, who was born in April 1928. By year's end, Marcel was accused of stealing oil cans from his town's railroad department. In early 1930, he was fined 200 francs and sentenced to three months in prison. He was also suspended from his mayor post for four months, though he eventually got the conviction reversed on appeal. Then came a suspicious fire. It broke out one evening in March 1930 at the house of a union leader whose wife was found inside the building, killed not by fire or smoke inhalation, but by blunt force trauma. Police found one witness who seemed poised to point the finger at Petio. But for some reason, this guy, named Fresco, decided it would be a smart idea to visit Petio at a hotel bar before providing testimony. Fresco had painful rheumatism, which Petio happened to have an experimental treatment for. He offered to inject Fresco with this medicine. Three hours later, Fresco was dead. From King's book, quote, the official cause of Fresco's death was an aneurysm, or by accident from a heart shock or some unknown side effect resulting from a hypodermic injection. This is, of course, possible, but the person who conducted the postmortem and signed the death certification was Villeneuve Suryon's medical coroner, and that position was held by Dr. Marcel Petio. End quote. Eventually, Petio did resign from the mayorship, but he was far from defeated. Five weeks later, he won an election to become the youngest of 34 general councillors from the Yon district, and he kept getting accused of stealing stuff, including electric power from the same town he'd overseen as mayor. This finally ended his political career, but his criminal one was just getting started. By January 1933, Dr. Petio had moved away from the suburbs and was advertising his new practice in Paris. Petio promoted himself with typical zeal, offering patients a wide variety of treatments, claiming both real and imaginary credentials. Advertisements described him as an intern at one mental hospital where he had actually been an internee or a patient. He also posted a brass plaque outside of his office that was crammed with phony endorsements. Another physician caught wise and complained about the bogus testimonials to the Medical Association, which insisted Petio remove the plaque. Still, over the next decade, he built an impressive practice with a stellar reputation, treating thousands of patients who had no complaints about the physician, who would soon be labeled in the French press as Dr. Cetan. 
or Dr. Satan. It wasn't entirely unforeseeable. Outside of the deaths to which Petio had some connection, he was tied to several more. Because he was a doctor, these were tough to investigate, however. One woman died with a fatal dose of morphine in her body, which her mother was certain was Petio's doing, but authorities couldn't determine if it was intentional, accidental, or even self-injected. Then came the utter chaos of 1940s Paris. War had broken out across Europe, with Nazi forces overpowering defenses in one major European city after another. Paris fell to German control on June 14, 1940. People were naturally scared. Some tried to flee straight away. Others couldn't wrap their heads around the situation, allowing them to trick themselves into thinking the occupation would be short-lived. They either couldn't leave Paris for financial reasons, or they didn't want to for patriotic ones. Then, of course, there were those Parisians who were Nazi sympathizers who were more than happy to stay in occupied Paris and turn on their countrymen and women. Rumor spread that Marcel Petio was the opposite of a sympathizer. In fact, he said he was a frontman of the resistance, helping endangered Parisians escape the country to find safety in South America. The tales of his kleptomania and strange behavior hadn't followed him to Paris. Rather, In the midst of the German occupation during World War II, Petio is considered a hero for operating a secret escape route for Jewish people attempting to leave Paris. That's from a History Channel documentary called Dark History. This view of Petio was bolstered in the spring of 1943 when he was arrested by the Gestapo. Having heard word of his supposed escape network, he was labeled a resistance leader and enemy of the Third Reich. The Gestapo police didn't merely interrogate him. They tortured him for eight months. This is Petio biographer Thomas Meter. They beat him, they filed his teeth, they compressed his head in iron bands, trying to find out more about the escape network. Genuine resistance who were in prison with him said that he was the bravest uh, person they had ever seen, that he taunted the Germans, he ridiculed them, he laughed at them. They were in awe of his courage and dedication, and they believed that he was genuinely a resistant. And fearless. The ordeal gave him bragging rights and solidified his reputation among others in the resistance. This is from a biography by Infographics. Now he had the best story of all, and one which made him seem very trustworthy among enemies of the Nazis. He now had torture scars and stories of prison. Business, he thought, while smiling, was about to boom. And it might have. If not for the smoke billowing from one of Petio's properties on March 11, 1944, that prompted neighbors to alert the police. When police fielded reports of smoke at 21 Rue Le Sur in March of 1944, they also heard an earful from neighbors about other issues with the townhouse. They said the place reeked. The stench was sometimes overwhelming. Also, the smoke this particular day, on the 11th, was especially bad, but seeing smoke in general pouring from the chimney wasn't unusual. Neighbors hadn't really met the townhouse's owner, but they would regularly see him riding to and from it on his bicycle, which towed a trailer that sometimes was filled with old antiques, and other times was filled with bulky cargo he covered with tarps. Now, I'm calling this a townhouse, which is true, but it was also a mansion. It had previously belonged to royalty. 
Neighbors were certain something peculiar was happening on Rue Lesseur. But before any of that could be investigated, officials first had to deal with what appeared to be a small fire burning in the basement. At first, they didn't enter, deciding instead to reach out to the property owner, Marcel Petio, whom they called at his residential apartment. The conversation went something like, Police, it seems there's a fire at your Lassure place. Petio, oh dear, don't go inside yet, I should be there within 15 minutes. Police waited as long as they could, but they started to worry. The smoke was getting thicker, and with this being a townhouse, there were neighboring buildings that could catch fire too. Finally, they entered. Police told the local firemen to check it out, and when they did, they found a large stove in the basement from which flames were in full flow. Investigators on the scene worked to tamp the stove fire, and in doing so, they made the first of countless horrific discoveries from briefcase again. They made their way to the furnace, where they were shocked to see that amongst the coal were human bones and dismembered human body parts. Now, believe it or not, investigators did not panic at this site, not only because they were hardened professionals living in a war zone, but because this happening in occupied Paris made things extra confusing. French police were ranked beneath Gestapo police, so if the local police had stumbled on a Gestapo torture house, they wouldn't have been able to intervene. It's crazy to think about, but they were essentially rent-a-cops compared to the German police occupying the city. Also, they didn't know anything about Marcel Petio straight away. Could he have been on the Gestapo's payroll? Sure, it wasn't as though the Gestapo kept French police apprised of anything, after all. This fear of overstepping their bounds took a different turn with an unexpected arrival at Rue Le Sur. A man rode up on a bicycle and said he was the brother of the home's owner and that he had to go inside the house to retrieve some documents or else people's lives would be at stake. Not because his brother was part of the Gestapo, quite the opposite. He told them that it was imperative that he was allowed to enter the building to retrieve some very important documents. He said that he was one of the leaders of a French resistance group and that the bodies inside were all enemies of France. The policeman believed his story. The so-called brother went inside, grabbed a handful of papers that the police didn't bother to inspect, and biked away. It would be a few days before the officers who had granted him access to the crime scene would finally see a photo of Marcel Petio and realize they'd actually let the doctor himself into the house. They would deny this for months until finally admitting what had happened to the man leading the investigation, Commissaire Georges-Victor Massou, the chief of the Brigade Criminelle. Massou arrived at Rue Le Sur that very first night. He saw the disturbing contents of the stove and sensed that there was much more to discover. While touring the townhouse, he and his officers found a strange triangular room with hooks on the wall. The room was bare outside of an uncomfortable-looking bed. Looking more closely, Masu realized there was a lens built into the wall so that someone outside of the triangular room could peer inside. The lens was magnified, too. So when Masu looked through with a fellow officer standing near the wall hooks, he got a close-up look of the officer's face. Masu realized this was likely a torture chamber, built specifically so that Petio could watch his victims' faces contort as they died. In the backyard, which was shielded from neighbors' view by high walls, Masu found a pit filled with quicklime. 
He lowered himself in and felt bones snap beneath his feet. The pit was filled with human remains. Much of it was in the process of decomposing and had been reduced to sludge, but enough was still intact to make it clear that the pit had been the final resting place of at least 10 people. But who were these people? Masu dispatched an officer to pick up Patio from his residence and ask questions, but the doctor was already gone. It was clear by the mess left behind that he'd fled in a rush. As the investigation continued, Masu and Ko learned about the escape network Patio purported to run. A quick note, this section gets even more name-laden, and I'm doing my best with my college-level French. There will be mistakes. Anyway, in broad terms, the network worked like this. Someone needing, or wanting, but usually needing, to flee occupied Paris would hear about the network and reach out to someone affiliated. There were two men who worked at a hair salon that served as a purported resistance front. Those men were Raoul Fourier, a 61-year-old hairdresser and wig maker, and his friend, a 56-year-old makeup artist named Edmond Marcel Pintar, a retired cabaret performer. Those two served as recruiters for Petio. They connected the people wanting to flee with the doctor, who would charge varying amounts. Basically, the richer the fleer, the more he or she was charged. Petio seemed genuine, talking passionately about the bastard Germans terrorizing Paris and promising to help these persecuted people leave Paris for a minimum of 25,000 francs. The fleers were instructed to meet Petio at a specific time and place. They were to bring up to two suitcases of valuables that Petio would make sure followed them to their final destination. They were also told to sew money and additional valuables into the clothing they wore at departure. Thomas Meter again. It was possible for him to really invite his victims to package themselves perfectly as victims. You had people who were desperate to escape. You asked them to take everything they owned and convert it into gold, jewels, and, and liquid cash to bring few possessions because you're going to be traveling light. Not tell anybody where you're going. Don't bring any identification papers. Remove all the marking from your clothes. They made themselves into perfect, untraceable victims for him. Now, with hindsight, we can, of course, wonder how anyone could have fallen for such a ruse, but we are not living the nightmare existence that Jewish people in occupied Paris were living. People disappeared from the streets every single day, never to be heard from again. Their businesses had already been stolen from them. They were forced to wear identifiers that made it even more likely they'd be randomly arrested for some bogus crime. And it's worth remembering, too, that there were examples of heroes they could look to to convince themselves that Petio could be one of the good guys. The resistance did exist, after all. Those brave fighters helped people every day, and Petio's eight months in a Gestapo jail had not only wafted through town as a rumor, but he had physical scars to prove it was true. So, with rare exception... Most people who met up with him about fleeing Paris ended up entrusting him with their lives. They would show up at the arranged meeting location and be told by Petio that everything was in order, their departure was imminent, but they did need to get some vaccinations before their voyage. They would never be seen again. Often, Petio would produce a postcard or letter for loved ones purporting to be written by the victim. Those often bore postmarks from Argentina. 
Patio would insist that the supposed recipients burn the communication straight away, so there ultimately weren't many physical copies to turn over to investigators, but Commissaire Massou heard about many of them after newspapers nationwide began reporting about the bodies found on the property of the man they dubbed both Dr. Satan and the modern Bluebeard. Now, how Petio killed each of his victims isn't totally clear, but it's assumed that the vaccinations he administered were poison. It seems, though, that this wasn't his only method of murder. Remember that triangular torture room I mentioned? Well, police eventually deduced that people trapped in that room would look for a way out, which likely led them to push a particular button on the wall. When the button was pressed, a hypodermic needle stuck out of it that also administered poison. Petio would apparently watch from his magnifying lens outside of the room as the people self-injected the poison and then watch them suffer from its effects. The individual stories of the victims were of course varied. Some were gangsters who had run afoul of both the Gestapo and local crime bosses, who were often just as brutal when doling out retribution, but many victims were everyday people who'd never run afoul of anyone, much less the law. By the time the investigation ended, police estimated that Petio's body count was at least 50 or 60, and possibly as high as 200. Not all of the victims were buried at 21 Rue Le Sur. As investigators pieced things together, they realized the disarticulation of the bodies mirrored those of dismembered corpses that had been fished from the Seine, a river that cuts through Paris. The victims included Lena Wolf, her husband Maurice and sister-in-law Rachel, Dr. Paul Braunberger, and Gilbert Bash and five members of his extended family. Those were people pulled from the river. It was in late 1941 that Petio bought the Le Sueur mansion, which he renovated throughout 1942 to add the strange triangular torture room and the backyard lime pit. This ended his need to haul dismembered victims to the river, which of course was a risky endeavor. Among the victims found at Le Sueur were Joachim Gushnau, the man from this episode's intro, Kurt Neller and his family, which included a young boy named René, Yvonne Dreyfus, who'd managed to escape a concentration camp only to be killed by Petio, and dozens more, many of their names lost to history. Petio evaded capture for seven long months. He talked his way into hiding out at various resistance members' houses, telling them that he was wanted only because he had killed Nazis and their collaborators. He never mentioned that police had found clothing and trunks belonging to fleeing Jewish people inside of his properties, and the properties of his brother Maurice, and even some homes of friends. During his time on the lam, by the way, this guy adopted a few aliases, including one he called Henri Valere, who was supposedly a police captain. I shit you not, Petio, as Valere, talked his way onto the task force charged with finding and arresting Petio. No one suspected a thing. Petio was only discovered when he wrote a letter to the editor responding to an article calling him a Gestapo collaborator. Despite his resistance reputation, that was one of the theories tossed about. Petio wrote that it wasn't true and unwittingly provided investigators clues as to his whereabouts. The postmark on the letter he mailed was from Paris, and the timing of its arrival to the newspaper suggested that he hadn't traveled from elsewhere before mailing it. 
He wrote, too, that he was working under an alias as a resistance doctor. This gave investigators enough to start looking at resistance doctors, and they found him using yet another alias. By the time he was tracked down and arrested in a train depot in late October 1944, the occupation had officially ended. As of mid-August, the French flag again flew above the Eiffel Tower, replacing the swastika that had been there for four years. The country was still in shambles, of course, which kept newspaper reporters quite busy, but that wasn't the only reason that publications seemed less than inclined to cover Petio's case after his arrest. It was clear that most newspapers straight up didn't want to cover the story. Some reported Petio's arrest and then said they wouldn't follow up beyond the results of his trial because they didn't want to give such an awful man publicity. But David King posits that the real reason was embarrassment, that Petio had used the resistance as a cover for such horrific, unspeakable acts. During trial, Petio continued to say that he had only killed Nazis and collaborators, but the jury didn't believe him. They'd been taken on a field trip to his torture house, and they had heard from family members whose loved ones disappeared after connecting with Petio. The doctor was convicted of 26 counts of murder and sentenced to death. His story came to an end on May 26, 1946, when he was beheaded at the guillotine. To research this story, I read David King's Death in the City of Light, the serial killer of Nazi-occupied Paris, and I watched several documentaries mentioned throughout. I also read contemporary news coverage, which King aptly characterized as a circus. Lastly, I watched a number of silent newsreels that I'll put up on our socials. Crimes of the Centuries is available early and ad-free through Grab Bag Collab. Join us at patreon.com slash grabbagcollab to hear not just exclusive content related to this show, but to also get access to several other shows on our profit-sharing network. Unless noted in the citations, this case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Amanda Rossman and Henry Lavoy. Original music is by Bruce Hunt, Andrew Higley, and occasionally by my son, Hunt Van Ben Scoten. Other music comes from Sound stripe and epidemic sound if you like the show help us out by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts for more information or to recommend a case go to centuriespod.com on instagram we're at centuriespod and check out our crimes this centuries podcast facebook page 